So great to see you all this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. I'm so glad you can be a part of this service today. Uh, this is a weekend where I'm, like many of you, I, I naturally find myself thinking about self-sacrifice. It is an extraordinary expression of love. It's what President Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion. And uh, as I think about self-sacrifice this weekend, I naturally find myself thinking about a particular set of statements that Jesus made. Some of you might be thinking about the exact same thing I'm thinking about. It's John chapter 15. Jesus says this, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this is why Jesus says next, you are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. When you read a passage like this, I think it's obvious why I would think about it during a time where we naturally think about self-sacrifice. Um, but today, I don't want to use this as a passage to talk about self-sacrifice in general. Instead, like every weekend, we want to really see Jesus. And if we're looking at this passage, we want to really understand what is this friendship that is extended to us by Jesus. So I'm asking this question today, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? This is a weekend, it's a three-day weekend, a lot of us are going to be hanging out with friends, I'm going to be hanging out with friends tonight. And how do you think about your friends? How do you think about friendship? And is what you think of when you think about friendship, is that what Jesus wants you to hear when you hear his words, you are my friends? And what are we to make of Jesus sandwiching together friendship and obedience? Those two things don't seem like they go together, do they? Those things mix like Vikings fans and Packers fans. It's an odd pairing. If we're going to accurately understand what Jesus meant, that means we have to see this from the vantage point from which Jesus was speaking. He's not the one who wrote this down. John wrote it down, but Jesus is the author of these statements, and our task as readers, our task as listeners is to defer to what the author meant, not what we want it to mean. And this is something called hermeneutics. And I'm going to give you just kind of a glimpse into part of the discipline of this thing called hermeneutics. If you're a note taker, please write this down. The better we know the author's world, the better we'll understand the author's meaning. Who loves to read fiction? Where's my fiction crowd out there? Who loves to read fiction? Good, good. All right. I don't read fiction. Uh, this annoys my wife what I'm about to tell you. I tell her, listen, I've read the greatest fictional story of all time. Everything else is a disappointment, so I only read nonfiction now. And of course, you know what I'm talking about. Lord of the Rings is the best ever. Where are my Lord of the Rings fans? Anybody? Lord of the Rings? Okay. My people are here. Now, this is J.R.R. Tolkien. And he is the author of, of Lord of the Rings. You do not have to know his world to enjoy his books. You do have to know his world to understand all that is there in his books. When we talk about knowing his world, we're talking about his culture, his language, his experiences, the grand story that defined his own personal story. And the grand story that defined his personal story was the gospel. The gospel. 
And all throughout Lord of the Rings, there are gems, hidden gems that point to Jesus. And today I want to share with you um, quickly what my favorite hidden gem is that points to Jesus in Lord of the Rings. Even if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, I, I think you can appreciate this. There's a character named Frodo. He was stabbed uh, by a wraith. If you don't know what that is, you just got to read, all right? He was stabbed with a Morgul blade that's really bad. He's dying. And this is Aragorn, and he's secretly the king, and no one really knows he's the king. And he treats Frodo's wound with a plant called Athelus, and everybody calls it king's foil. And to everybody else, Athelus is really just a weed, but what they don't know is that in the hands of a king, it's used to heal. And so what you have is an unrecognized king who uses something that is unappreciated to bring a healing that is unexpected. And for many of us, that's exactly how we experience Jesus. We experience him as healer before we recognize him as king. And he has this tendency to use insignificant things and unwanted things to bring healing in our life that we never saw coming. When you know the world and you know the faith of Tolkien, you see it bursting through on almost every page. The better you know the author's world, the better you'll understand the author's meaning. And so let's ask this question. What do we need to know about Jesus' world? Jesus intentionally interjected himself into a particular moment in human history. He did it intentionally, sovereignly, providentially, and skillfully. He used culture and language and history and experiences to communicate the message that God has come to bring friendship. And if you want to see, if you want to see the grandeur and the depth and the richness of the gospel, it's incumbent upon us to look at all the cultural practices that Jesus used to communicate that incredible message. Today I want to share with you something that might be new to some of you, might not be new to some of you. It's the Greco-Roman cultural practice of patronage. And that is something that Jesus used as a reference point to better understand this incredible gift of friendship that he brought. Daniel K. Ng is a New Testament scholar, a professor, and an author. And he wrote an article called, What a Patron We Have in Jesus. And that is an intentional play on an old hymn from 1856, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And Daniel K. Ng is talking about when we read John 15 to understand what Jesus meant by friendship and command, we have to understand the Greco-Roman um, cultural practice of patronage. He writes this, in Jesus' world, it was difficult for people of low social status to obtain goods and services, so they often approached someone of influence to advocate for their needs. If the high-ranking official or wealthy benefactor agreed to grant their request, they began a lifelong patron-client relationship. These relationships were unequal. The person of high status, the patron, was superior to the person of low status, the client. The patron helped the client acquire what he needed. In return, the client pledged loyalty to the patron. Now in the day and in the time in the world of Jesus, it's very common that patrons wanted to honor the dignity of their clients, so they didn't call them clients. Do you know what they called them? Friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
Now, I want to share with you some facts about the patron-friend relationship. And as I share with you these facts about the patron-friend relationship, see if you can spot the gospel. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Patrons gave their friends access to goods and services that they otherwise couldn't access on their own. Patrons gave their friends access to and acquired favors from even greater patrons. Patrons served as mediators between their friends and an even greater patron. There's one mediator between God and man, and who is it? It's Jesus. Friends could make a request to the greater patron in the name of their own patron. We pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus. When requesting a favor from a greater patron, the patron's character served as a guarantee for his friend's character. We approach God the Father with confidence, not based on our own status or goodness, but on the goodness, the status, and the righteousness of Jesus. And becoming a recipient of a patron's favor united the two in a relationship for life. In the Greco-Roman world, Do you know what word was used to describe a patron's disposition towards their friend? And keep in mind that patrons were often referred to as Lord. That's my Lord, my patron, my Lord. Do you know what word was used in the Greco-Roman culture to describe a patron's disposition to their friend? Grace. In the Greek, it sounds like this, charis. In the Greco-Roman world, do you know what word was used to describe a friend's response to their patron? Faith. And in the Greek, it sounds like this, pistis. Charis and pistis. Grace and faith fused together, patron and friend, for life. And the immediate hearers of Jesus would have, they would have instinctively understood this is what he is talking about. Jesus, you are our patron. You are our Lord. We are dependent on you for things we could never achieve or acquire on our own. We are beneath you. We are your friends, and that's a status you have given us. And for the rest of our lives, you have our allegiance. We live for you. The disciples who were there would have immediately understood that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. And they would have expected Jesus to say something like this. You are my friends if you do what I command. That wasn't surprising. That was good news, but it wasn't surprising news. This was the surprising thing that they never saw coming. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. No patron did that. No one ever did that. For a patron to be here and his friends to be here, and a patron said, no, 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 I'm going to give my life for you. No one had ever seen or even heard of anything like that. It fundamentally transformed these disciples. They saw it displayed on the cross. They saw it ratified by the resurrection. And they would spend the rest of their lives declaring this incredible good news. And they would spend the rest of their lives explaining and and teasing out the significance and the implications of what it means to be a friend to all of those who would trust in Jesus, give him their allegiance, and receive his gift of friendship. And so today, let's do that. For the next several minutes, let's ask and answer this question, what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? And today, I'm going to give you four four key responses to that. 
And this patron-friend relationship, it is a thread that is woven through all throughout the New Testament. And so today I'm going to read a variety of different passages because I want it to be the lens through which you see the New Testament because it's going to help us, I think, better understand and better appreciate the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is the kind of verse you're going to read all over the New Testament. It says this, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will. This is what he wants for you. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you and Christ Jesus. In the Greco-Roman world, no friend could ever pay off or pay back what a patron gave them. No one expected that. The response was gratitude. That's what you were supposed to do. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18, verses like this you're going to read over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. And sometimes people might wonder, why is it that God would command gratitude if I don't feel it? It's because it's not a feeling. It is a disposition, and it is now the orientation of your life. If you're a note taker, would you write this down? Friends of Jesus are not expected to pay back anything, but to give thanks for everything. We can't pay back anything to our patron, our Lord, but we give thanks for everything he has done for us and in us. And sometimes, as people read the Bible or they listen to a gospel message, they wonder, why is it that God responds so sternly to sin? Why does God respond so seriously to sin? And yes, sin is disobedience, but I want you to hear this today. God is not primarily concerned with rule keeping. At the root At the bedrock of sin is a heart that is expressing ingratitude and dishonor to the one who has flooded us with his grace. And that is why. That is why we read things like this. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter one. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave, what's this word? Thanks. They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans chapter one, let's just be honest. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, it is a chapter in the New Testament that has caused some controversy and people find it provocative because they think, they read it and they think it's about God wants people to keep these rules and not break those rules, but it's not primarily concerned with that. It's our disposition. Will we orient our lives to be a life of gratitude and honor? to the one who made us and saved us and gave his life for us. It's about living a life of gratitude and honor. Seneca was a Roman philosopher who was enamored with this patron-friend relationship. He wrote extensively about it, and as I read Seneca, I think he is a guy who longed for a pure and ideal version and expression of this patron-friend relationship. I don't think he ever experienced it, but I think there was something in him that longed for it. And I want to share with you something that Seneca wrote. I want you to pay special attention to the very first sentence. Ingratitude is something to be avoided in itself because there is nothing that so effectually disrupts and destroys the harmony of the human race as this vice. Seneca was so close to the gospel and yet he missed the gospel. And in some ways he has a keener insight to the gospel than, than maybe some of us do that he understood the most grievous response to the grace of a patron and Lord is ingratitude. And writing about this kind of relationship, he said, for how else do we live in security if if not that we help each other by an exchange of good offices? It is only through the interchange of benefits that life becomes in some measure equipped and fortified against sudden 
disasters. What is Seneca saying? He's saying the only way we can live with confidence in an uncertain world is if we have a patron who gives us grace. And if we have that, we respond with gratitude. That is the gospel. So what does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? Well, that means we don't pay back anything, but we give thanks for everything that our patron, that our Lord has given to us. In the Greco-Roman world, um, patrons did not give out their favor and grace willy-nilly. They didn't give it out indiscriminately. They were looking for people who already displayed a predisposition, a tendency towards responding with gratitude and honor. Basically, they were looking for good people. And this is where the grace of Jesus is nothing less than scandalous. There is no reference point in human history for the kindness that he brings. I want you to hear these words that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament book of Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's, what's this word? We were God's enemies. We weren't showing a disposition to to being good people. We weren't showing a predisposition to living a life of gratitude and honor. We were on the wrong side of the fence. And we were his enemies and God loved us. For while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? This is the second answer. Being friends with Jesus is more than being given something new. It means being changed into something new. That means that God looks at us, and not based on anything that we've done, but based on what Jesus did on our behalf, said, I'm going to make you from enemy to friend. And it gets better than that. David De Silva is another New Testament scholar and professor and author, and he writes in a way trying to help us see how stunning and how magnificent and marvelous the grace of Jesus is. And he writes about it like this. He says, rather distinctive about God's favor is that he offers to anyone who will come without prior scrutiny of the character and reliability of the recipients, the assurance of welcome into God's own household, even to the point of adoption into God's family as sons and daughters, and to the point of sharing the inheritance of the son, which is exceptional, even in personal patronage. Can you see it? The grace of Jesus is extraordinary. What does it mean to be his friend? We don't pay back anything. We give grace, excuse me, we give gratitude, we give thanks for everything. We're not simply receiving something new, we're being changed into something new. The third part of this answer, I wanna flip the order of what I normally do. I normally like to read the text first and then draw observations or points out of the text. And the reason we go in that order is because I want to constantly reinforce that we place ourselves underneath the authority of God's Word and we're, we're not putting meaning into it, we're deriving the meaning from it. Okay, but today, what I want to do is I want to flip that order. What I'm going to share with you comes from the text, but I want to give it to you first because I think it'll help us better see what we're going to read in the text. The third answer, what does it mean to be a friend with Jesus? Being friends with Jesus means breaking friendship with Jesus' rivals. 
in the Greco-Roman world, it was normal for a person to have multiple patrons. So this is you, your friend, and this guy is your patron, and this woman over here, she's your patron. That was totally normal. No one called you a hypocrite. No one said that was wrong or weird. Normal, commonplace thing for one person to have multiple patrons that you gave your allegiance to. But sometimes these patrons would be rivals. And sometimes these patrons would be enemies, and that would put this person in an impossible position. How do you honor this person when honoring this person means to dishonor that person? When these two are at war, how do you live at peace with both? When these two are at war, you cannot be a friend to both. And this is the exact thing that Jesus was talking about when he made this statement. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. You can't serve both God and money. And the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about, it's the kind of thing that growing in our understanding and growing into this will take a lifetime, and that's okay. That's what the Christian life is. Growing into our understanding of what we've been given, growing into our status that Jesus has given us. This is a lifelong process, and the biblical word for that is sanctification, and it's good. When we turn to Jesus as our ultimate authority, when we give our highest allegiance to Jesus, it means turning our back on and breaking up with all the rivals of Jesus. And sometimes it's just really obvious what those rivals are and we break up quick. The problem is sometimes those rivalries aren't so clear and we're not keenly aware of the divided loyalties that exist inside of us. And the way that we become aware of the divided loyalties that exist inside of us is we get honest about sin in our lives. And when we get honest about sin in our lives, we have two options. We can repent or we can try and redefine grace. Two options. We can repent or we can try and redefine grace. And I think a lot of us are vulnerable to try to redefine grace. I'm vulnerable to it. Maybe all of us are vulnerable to it. And one of the ways that we're vulnerable to try and redefine grace is to use it as a cover to make it okay for us to continue to engage in intentional, ongoing sin. It's an old problem. And it's something that the Apostle Paul wrote about in the very beginning. This is the exact thing he's responding to. He wrote this in Romans 6. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your, what's this word? And this is what faith is all about. You have been set free. You have been set free from sin and have become a slave to righteousness. And I'm convinced that Paul keeps using this word slave to demonstrate the power of, to keep beating the drum of the importance of what it means to be bound to Jesus voluntarily for life. The rivals of Jesus cannot be reduced. The rivals of Jesus cannot be reduced to breaking rules and bad behavior. That is naive thinking that misses the grandeur and the depth and the richness 
of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Rivals of Jesus are this. They are things in our lives. They are idols in our lives that demand our allegiance, leading us to be unlike Jesus and to dishonor him. And it looks like this. We have divided loyalties. We have an allegiance to Jesus, but we also have an allegiance to, to something else. And the ironic truth that we have to wrestle down to the ground is that these things right here, rivals of Jesus, they're almost always good things, maybe always good things, that have become a rival of Jesus because we live for these things as ultimate things. And we've given them our ultimate allegiance. A friend of Jesus cannot give their highest allegiance to money. A friend of Jesus can't live for money because that'll make it a rival of Jesus. Can I be vulnerable with you guys? You guys gonna gossip about me? Can I tell with you, share with you one of my rivals of Jesus in my own life? It's your approval. It's, and there's nothing wrong with wanting other people to say, hey, that was a good job. There's nothing wrong with, with, with other people approving of what you've done, but when you live for it, it becomes ugly. And it becomes a rival of Jesus. Friends of Jesus can't give their highest allegiance to money. Friends of Jesus can't give their highest allegiance to approval. Friends of Jesus cannot give their highest allegiance to sexual fulfillment. And those are things that will cause friends of Jesus to always be out of step with culture. Those are just a few examples of what some of, rival, some of Jesus' rivals are and can be. We will never understand what is happening in our country and we'll never understand what is happening in our churches if we don't understand this. Politics, political affiliation, social movements, and social concerns can and have risen to this level. It's why friends of Jesus sometimes don't act that friendly. It's because they've given their highest allegiance to those things. And we're not saying that politics and social concerns aren't important. Of course they're important. You should be involved in those things. But they're not our authority. They're not the source of our identity. We don't play by their rules. Is it okay if I keep pressing into this a little bit? This is one of those things that I think is incredibly slippery. Understanding that we break up with Jesus' rivals I think is one of the hardest things to understand in the Christian life. Religious organizations, religious tribes, religious movements, even those under the label of evangelical can and have risen to the level of Jesus' rivals. And we see it especially when they become about power, money, personalities, and preservation of image. The reason, or a reason, it's not the only reason, but a reason that there is havoc in our country and havoc in our churches is because friends of Jesus have given their allegiance to political, social, religious, and even evangelical tribes. Being friends with Jesus means breaking friendships with Jesus' rivals. And through that filter, I want you to hear what I want to read to you next. 
The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. It's what we used to do. We once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Friendship with Jesus changes everything. It changes how we see him. It changes how we see everyone else. It changes who and what we live for. And from my soul down to my toes, this is what I've become convinced of. When we are bound to friendship with Jesus, we are bound to be friends like Jesus. This changed the world. And as the good news that God has brought friendship through the person of Jesus to people, it unraveled the foundations of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire was a culture and a network of societies that was built on power and privilege, misogyny, intimidation, and moral decadence. And as people heard and responded in faith and allegiance to the message that Jesus brought friendship to them, they were bound to be friends like Jesus. And it was only a matter of time before their collective influence influenced an emperor. Their, their collective Im impact influenced a Roman emperor to create and change laws to honor a man who was nailed to a cross. Do you know how it happened? It took less than 300 years. And I can't share with you all the things that they did, but I want to share with you a few of the things that they did. Wealthy people who became friends of Jesus began to use their affluence to fund the spread of the gospel. Men who had all the privileges began to consider it their privilege to use their advantage for the advantage of others. Men who had the legal protection to dominate their wives began to sacrifice for and serve their wives. Men who had the legal protection to abuse those in their homes began to protect those in their homes. Women who had every reason to envy men because men held the power began to happily respect their husbands. Slave owners became gentle with and honoring of their slaves. Slaves honored and worked harder for their slave owners. Then slave owners began to voluntarily free their slaves. Leaders used their position to serve those underneath them instead of being served by those underneath them. People who had interpersonal conflicts in the church, I know that's hard to imagine, but in the church back then, people didn't get along all the time. People who had interpersonal conflicts began to give up their preferences so that they could give to the needs and the preferences of the person they were fighting with. Husbands rejected having mistresses and submitted their bodies to their wives' authority. Dads committed to protecting and nurturing the hearts and well-being of their children. For the first time in human history, humility was seen as a virtue and not as a weakness. People gave away property and financial resources to serve the needs of other people. 
Women were given equal access to education and were invested in as full partners in discipleship and co-workers in ministry. Women were given positions of honor and leadership. Baby girls were rescued from infanticide. For the first time in history, daughters were honored as inherently valuable and seen as equal in value to sons. For the first time in human history, people began to view ethnicity, class, and gender as irrelevant indicators of value. Those causes of division were abandoned and replaced by seeing each other as brother and sister, and it led to deep community. When plagues and diseases ravaged cities, causing everyone to flee, friends of Jesus intentionally moved into those cities so that they could treat the sick and the dying. Friends of Jesus happily and continually shared the good news of Jesus, even when it came at great personal cost. Friends of Jesus refused to fight back when they were mistreated and when they were imprisoned for their allegiance to Jesus. And just like Jesus did for them, they gave their lives even for their enemies. It's because when you're bound to friendship with Jesus, you're bound to be a friend like Jesus. I want to ask you this. Do you think that our world is any more difficult or darker than theirs? Like many of you this week, I have been gripped by and my heart has been broken by ongoing tragic news stories and reports. How do we respond to that? What do we do? For those of us who have experienced the impact of being a friend of Jesus, this is what I suggest. Let's make sure this world experiences the collective impact of us being friends like Jesus. Because when we're bound to Jesus in friendship, we are bound to be friends like 